0: I confess we've we've been in sheltering in place a little longer than you guys, so it's really nice actually to get out and about a little bit this morning. Come to the Lord with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, there is a message worth hearing and there is a word worth listening to. And God, I confess it doesn't belong to me, it's not mine. So, Father, I ask that you would Help me to speak your word. I ask that you would bless those listening, that they would hear your word. If I say something that is against your word or is not true, I ask that you would protect their minds and their hearts from it. We ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The text I'm preaching from today is Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinion. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, declares the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is the word of the Lord. It's no surprise that we live in a very polarized and divided age. Just need to... Look at the news from two different news sources, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, CNN, and Fox News. And you can see the very same event can have very different interpretations. But you don't even need to go looking for news. You can just go onto social media. You can find all sorts of opinions there. People around my age and younger will clearly tell you what they think. We are in an era where we like to divide. We have distinctions, lines in the sand between us. And if you add religion into that, it gets even more complicated. I've had a pastor in my life who told a very dark story about a man who was on a bridge contemplating ending his life. And another man was walking by he sees this man thinking about jumping and says, well, wait, wait, hold, hold on. There's got to be something in your life worth living for. Well, maybe, maybe you, you're a religious now, are you? And he says, yes, I am. And he says, me too. Well, what, what kind of religion do you have? He says, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. And he says, ah, me too. Well, are you a, a Catholic Christian? Or are you a Protestant Christian? And the man says, I'm a Protestant Christian. The other man says, well, me too well, are you a Calvinist Protestant Christian or an Arminian Protestant Christian? He says, I'm a Calvinist Protestant Christian. The man says, ah, me too. And then he says, are you a superlapsarian Calvinist Protestant Christian or are you an infralapsarian Calvinist Protestant Christian? The man says, I'm a superlapsarian Calvinist Protestant Christian. To which the other man replies, die, heretic scum, and pushes him off the bridge. Bit exaggerated. I I hope no one has killed them, killed anyone, let alone themselves over superlapsarianism. There's a lot of labels in theology that we have. By a show of hands, who actually knows what superlapsarianism means? Alright, we got one. We got two. Wow. Three? That's pretty good. Don't be ashamed if you don't know what that means. it's not, it's not the most important thing in the Bible. Christ can still have died for you without that. But it's not bad to have these labels. It's not bad to talk about all of the different labels. But if you dislike someone just because of their label, well, he's an Arminian, a dispensationalist. And you don't know what that means. Well, probably should figure it out before you take issue with your brother or sister in Christ. But at times, there is genuine disagreement in the family of God. We have brothers and sisters who aren't Calvinist. We have brothers and sisters even who aren't Protestant. What do we do with that? What do we do with all those disagreements? Paul's dealing with a similar, a different, but a similar issue in this letter to the church in Rome. He's dealing with a controversy about weak Christians against strong Christians. What do we do? Well, Paul's answer is pretty straightforward. We welcome them because we belong to God both the weak and the strong. Now, what, what does that mean? First thing you might notice if you've read the book of Romans at all is that this is an oddly specific problem for Paul to be writing because he's never been to Rome before. How do you know there's weak and strong brothers there? You might think, well, there's weak and strong brothers everywhere, but this Vegetables? The weak brother only eats vegetables? I have vegan brothers and sisters in the church, and I don't think they're necessarily weak for it. So what's going on? You've never been there, Paul. How would you know this is going on? Well, you don't have to look right now, but if you did, if you looked at Romans 16, you'd see all the people Paul writes a specific greeting to. There's about 50 names there. He has a good relationship with all of them. He speaks to these people often. So he knows what's going on in the church, even if he doesn't commonly go there, even if he's never been there before. So what's going on? Well, if you'll permit me, just for a little bit, a little bit of history will elaborate this passage, illuminate it. In 41 A.D., The Roman emperor, whose name was Claudius at the time, expelled all of the Jews from Rome. The reason, one historian who was alive at the time tells us, is because the Jews were rioting. They were rioting over a man named Crestus. Uh, Most scholars looking back think, well, it wasn't Crestus, which is a normal slave name in that era. It was Christus who they were rioting over. It was Christ. And so Claudius, having no knowledge of theology and the inner workings of the church, just looks at the Jews rioting and says, oh, those people are trouble. Get them out of Rome. So the Christian and the non-Christian Jews were banished from the city of Rome, but the Christian Gentiles remained. So you have, on one hand, your Christian brothers and sisters who are raised in a Jewish tradition. They have the law. And these people are now living with Jews who aren't Christians. So they're being enmeshed with those people and those traditions. And you have the Gentile Christians, on the other hand, who have no food laws, who have no introduction to the Old Testament. They live very differently. Then before this letter was written, the emperor who succeeded... After Claudius, kind of famous or infamous, his name is Nero, let the Jews back into the city. And so the Christian Jews come back to the Christian Gentiles. So who's weak? Is it the Jews or is it the Gentiles? Well, it's the Jewish Christian. Ironically, it's the one who has the Old Testament law. Why do we think that? Well, look at what Paul specifies in this passage. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Now, if you know a little bit about the Old Testament, you'll know that some sorts of meat were forbidden. They couldn't eat pigs. They couldn't eat shellfish of any sort. So why no meat, though? It's probably because of the preparation that would be used in Rome. You see, Gentiles would often sacrifice meat before they sold it to a false god. That's not kosher for the Jews. But probably even more than that, it has to do with blood. As we heard earlier today, Jews weren't allowed to eat any meat with blood in it. So when you prepared the meat, you had to drain it completely. But the Gentiles didn't have that practice. They weren't worried about it in Rome of all places. And buy meat. You can't. It's just better to abstain from it altogether. So you could see probably how these two traditions This Gentile Christianity and this Jewish Christianity would butt heads a little bit. People who have been raised in that tradition suddenly coming up to another person calling himself a Christian. And they're they're eating meat. They're eating meat with blood in it. They're eating meat sacrificed to a false god. What? That's clearly wrong. (laughs) Have you not read the Old Testament? Don't you see this? It's said right there, God says not to do it. Why are you sinning your way to hell? And the Gentile Christian, of course, who's only heard what the missionaries have told him, he knows everything's clean. He's perfectly convinced that it doesn't matter if I eat blood, it doesn't matter if I eat pig, it doesn't matter if it's sacrificed to an idol. The idol's not real, there's only one real God. And so when he sees a Jew getting upset at what he's eating, asks him why. He says, because it's unclean. The Gentile would say, it's not unclean. How stupid are you? God doesn't care what I eat. So you can see this would be a problem for the church. Now, Paul, he's not just some mediator coming up and saying, all right, let's have these two parties deliberate. He picks a side. Look at the first verse in chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Paul's saying, I'm a strong Christian. I'm convinced nothing's unclean. And he's Jewish. It would make sense then for Paul to walk up and just say, Well, the weak need to become strong. They need to be like me. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul talking. This is the guy who wrote so many books of the Bible, who started the church in the Mediterranean area. The growth of the church that we see today is only because of his work. He could probably say, be like me. He even says it in 1 Corinthians, I urge you to imitate me. He could say that, but he doesn't. Why? Why does it just tell them to get a move on, become stronger? In fact, he doesn't say that. He says, welcome them. And his reason is because they belong to God. Strong and weak belong to God. I think it's important to realize when Paul says weak, he doesn't mean weak in conscience. He doesn't mean someone going around being flip-floppy. You can have a very strong conscience be weak in this way. One of my favorite preachers, Sinclair Ferguson, said about this particular passage. To be a weak brother is to have a strong conscience. but To be a strong brother is to have an instructed one. As we heard in Mark, Jesus said, there's nothing that can go into you that can make all you unclean. It's what comes out of you that makes you unclean. It's sin that is the stain. It's not the food. And yet Paul says, welcome the one who disagrees with that. Now, you might instantly think, wait a second, I've read Galatians. I know what Paul thinks of Judaizers. I know what Paul thinks of those people who think the law is still in effect. In Galatians, that's the issue that's going on. There are people saying, well, you need to be circumcised to be saved. You need to do the Old Testament food laws to be saved. They're adding to the gospel. And Paul gets really mad at those people. He's so angry, he says some of the most interesting things. One of my favorite quotes from Galatians, if for nothing else in the humor of it, is Paul says, I wish the people who were bothering you would just emasculate themselves. If you don't know what that means, ask your parents. So that's the Paul we know. He's okay dividing, so what's going on here? Well, the difference is Paul's utterly convinced that those people in Galatia were saying the gospel that Paul shared isn't true. This is the real way to salvation. But these Jewish Christians in Rome, they don't mind that Gentiles are Christians. They're not saying, oh, no, 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 you you don't know the gospel. They're just grieved by what they do. It says there is a difference between understanding our faith and its salvation and having some difference in practice. Some things aren't permitted, true. Sexual immorality and covetousness. But overly conservative isn't one of them. Let me walk you through Paul's argument here. It has three parts, like any good sermon. First is, they belong to their master, not you. Look at verse 3 of chapter 14. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. So he's saying, if you eat, you can't look at the one who's abstaining and hate him for it. You know how easy that is? I did that when I was growing up all the time. What, do you think you're better than me? What if they are? They're not accountable to me. It says so in verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? That's not how we should think shouldn't think, oh, of course. You think you're better than me, so clearly you're inferior. No. They're doing what they're doing out of a service to God. God is the one who will judge whether that service is good. And then Paul takes it a step further. He's completely convinced of their salvation. Look at the rest of verse 4. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So how does a weak Christian get into heaven? same way a strong one does. The saving death of Jesus Christ. That's how you get to heaven. It's not about the strength or weakness of your faith. It's what you put your faith in. That saves you. So, don't worry too much about those little things, Paul is saying, because they're accountable for God. And God is able to make them stand by the death of his only son. That's a pretty good argument. Paul's got another one. Verses 5 through 9 lay this out pretty well. He says, not only are they still saved, but... They're acting in faith. Really? People don't talk about it this way, about people they disagree with. But here he is. He brings up another controversy here. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. It's in verse 5 actually, I misread that, I'm sorry. The one who esteems one day as better than another, while one esteems all days alike, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, this could be talking about the Sabbath. I tend to think not, because the rest of the Bible speaks about the Sabbath as pretty clear. It's a good thing, and Christians still worship on the Sabbath. More likely, it's talking about the feast days. It's talking about the Passover talking about the Feast of Booths. Some Christians from a Jewish background will definitely celebrate those. Is that wrong? And the Gentile doesn't care, doesn't celebrate them. That's not wrong either. Paul says each should be convinced in his own mind. The strong and the weak. Shouldn't the weak move? No. Because the one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. In verse 6, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. They're all acting in faith. They're not abstaining from this food because they just want to be mean to Gentiles. And the Gentiles aren't eating this food because they just want to be mean to the Jewish believers. That's not what's happening. Both of them are doing it and giving thanks to God. There's two things in this passage that we should take away from it. Firstly, there is a conviction If you don't act in faith, you're probably in sin. You can actually see this in the text in the next section down in chapter 14 in the second half. Actually, it's in the very last part of it. Verse 23, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So that's a scary thought. What if you're not acting in faith? What if you're acting out of something else? And believe me, there are so many motivations that go through my head every day that aren't faith. I like to please people. I like to have comfort in my life. I like to avoid pain when I can. None of those things are bad. But if it's not done in faith, then what's it done in? It's not done thinking about God, it's done thinking about something else. That's frightening, isn't it? Maybe not for all of you, but it definitely is for me. I look at my own life and think, oh my, I'm in trouble. But Paul being the brilliant writer that he is, he doesn't leave us there. He starts in verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. We might be, he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. So Paul's already given us that warning do everything in faith. Now there's something else. Now there's hope. We're not going to be perfect on this side of heaven, and Paul probably knows that better than anyone. But if we do have faith, even a little, even if we're weak in our Christianity, It's not the strength of your belief. It's not the strength of what you do in any sense that saves you. That's your response to what saves you. What gets you to heaven is belonging to the Lord, is being bought with a price, is having blood shed that none of your sins will be counted against you. That's what saves. Paul wants to be clear that whether you're weak or you're strong, that doesn't matter. It's the death of Jesus Christ. Again, Paul could have stopped here. He's given us, they belong to God. They act in faith. But then he gives a whammy. Verses 10 to 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. First glance, this seems like the same thing as that first paragraph, right? Well, yeah, everyone's accountable to God and he will make them stand. That's not what he's saying at all. We already know that Paul knows his New Testament pretty well, which is remarkable considering the fact that it hadn't even been written yet. But he knew all the stories of Jesus. He knew that everything was clean. He probably knew another one, one where the sheep and the goats were separated before the judgment seat of God. Jesus looks at the sheep and he says, welcome, come into my presence, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me and all the sheep are like God. When did we see you? When did this happen? And his response is, Truly, truly, I tell you, what you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. And then he turns to the goats and he says the exact opposite. Depart from me, you lawless workers of evil. For I was hungry and you didn't give me something to eat. I was thirsty and you didn't give me something to drink. I was naked and you did not clothe me. And they say the same thing, Lord, when did this happen? Where were we rejecting you? And he says, what you did to the least of these, you do to me. The passage is talking about Christians, about God's people. That's probably what Paul had in mind when he wrote this. So why do you despise your brother? Why do you Bring judgment on your brother because what you do to your brother, even to a weak one, to the least of these, you're doing to Christ. Because that's where their identity is. That's what saves them. Why are you passing judgment on the one who saved you? If they're saved, that's his decision. You really don't get to speak too much into that. Now, of course, the thing probably on your minds is, well, yeah, but we can't just let anyone in. There's rules, right? Yes, there are. And there are important ones. You've already seen. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, is not above calling people out. He says, at one point, if anyone preaches a gospel, even an angel... That is not this one, let him be accursed. Then just to do it justice, he says the same thing again. Paul will not compromise on the gospel, and neither should we. Paul will not compromise on sin in the church, and neither should we. In 1 Corinthians 7, case of sexual immorality is brought before the church. A man who slept with his father's wife. And Paul can't believe that they're okay with it. He says, put that man out of the assembly. Don't even eat with him. Hand him over to Satan in the hopes that maybe he'll come back. Maybe he'll be saved at the last day. Paul's not above church discipline. Paul thinks it's necessary. But when it comes to little things we do, little decisions we make, Whether or not we wear a mask. Whether or not we open the church. Whether you're a superlapsarian or an infralapsarian. That's not something. That's not a hill to die on. That's not something that Christ will look at and say, well, you're clearly a lawless doer of evil. Now I thought, as I was writing my sermon, maybe I should list off a couple other things that divide us. Then someone else convinced me that if I did, I'd just be dividing. And I'd just be partaking in that same judgment of looking down at people. I'd just be looking down at both sides. That's not a good place to be, because that's not what Christ did. Instead, I thought I'd close by reading the first few verses in chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbors for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach to you Fell on me. For what was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that even while we were still sinners, bearing no love for you, you died for us. God, I ask that you would protect us from becoming too entrenched in opinions and the little things, that in the next life won't really matter. God, I ask that you would give us wisdom to tell the difference between what is something that we need to care about, what is a hill to die on, what is something that might challenge the Gospel, and what is something that can be let go. God, you have made both the important things and the unimportant ones. and We should care about them all. But we ask that you would give us righteousness in how we care about them. We ask all this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.